Well, today we are wrapping up the Olivet Discourse, chapters 24 and 25 of the Gospel of Matthew, a series I have entitled The End of the Age. And Jesus has been talking about the signs and all the events concerning his second coming. He has been speaking about the things concerning the end of the age. And we've been seeing uh, the warnings that he's given. Back in chapter 24, verse 6, he said, You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not troubled, for all these things must come to pass. But the end is not yet, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom And there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginnings of are the beginning of sorrows. And that term sorrows literally means birth pangs. So Jesus is saying, hey, these are the contractions that lead up to my second coming. Now, like many people, uh, maybe you're one of them, maybe it's just me, but I'm fascinated with many of the post-apocalyptic films, the movies, and TV shows that show these, you know, the dystopian future and those kinds of things. And then you have the shows that are more like reality shows, the uh, extreme survival, you know, life below zero, uh, survivor, those kinds of things on how to survive a disaster. There was one show that was quite popular about a decade ago called Doomsday Preppers. It aired from 2011 to 2014. And what was fascinating about that show was that they would do assessments. The producers of the show, they would do assessments of people's preparations. You know, their bunker, how secure was their bunker? Their homestead, how supply, you know, their supplies, how they supplied all of their, their things. And the security, how was your security on your place? And regardless of how well equipped and prepared they were, every single one of them had an area of weakness. There was some weakness somewhere. No matter how much money they had spent, and they spent, some people spend lots and lots of money, and no matter how well prepared they were, the show found an area of weakness, and they highlighted what was missing. And rarely did someone get an A, an A score, and if they did, it was an A-, minus, because there was always something missing. There was always some way that your preparations would fall short uh, given the right situation or disaster. So the point being, you really need to know what disaster you're preparing for, what type of disaster. If you live in an earthquake-prone area, you got to prepare for that, or tornadoes, or for us, hurricanes, but not really, because that's more, far, it's far enough away, it's not a huge concern. But you need to know what type of disaster you're preparing for. But people would spend hundreds of thousands of dollars, in fact, Prepping is big business with roughly one-third of the adult population in the U.S. 29% of the U.S. population dropped a collective $11 billion in the last 12 months on emergency preparedness. But when it comes to readiness in the way that Jesus is talking about in these chapters, it's not about food and water or weapons for protection. Readiness is about being spiritually prepared and having a heart that is open to Jesus Christ. Are you ready to pass from this life? Are you ready for his return? And Jesus talked about all of these signs of his coming in chapter 24. Then we come to chapter 25 and we see three parables. The first two parables describe the condition of people's hearts when Jesus arrives. In the parable of the ten virgins, we saw that there will be some people who are waiting 
and some who are found wanting. Those who are waiting, they had, they're waiting for Christ. They have their oil in their lamps, symbolic of the Holy Spirit. They have opened their life to Jesus Christ. Uh, they're waiting in anticipation of his return. Those wanting were not prepared. They did not have oil. They were not looking forward to his coming. And by comparison, they, they are not saved. Well, then last time we saw the parable of the talents, where Jesus contrasted those who were working with those who were found wanting. Now, those who were working aren't saved by their works, but because they were faithful in what God had given them. They were faithful to use the talents, the abilities, and the opportunities that God gave them. God has given all of us talents and gifts and abilities and opportunities, and he calls us to use those for his glory. And Jesus says that they were faithful. They were putting it to use for the kingdom. But there was one who was found wanting because he took that one talent he was given, the, his abilities, his opportunities, and he buried it. He had no regard for Christ or for God at all. Well, that leaves us with this last section here in chapter 25, verses 31 through 46, where Jesus talks about what happens to those two specific groups of people when he comes. This parable is really more of a comparative description of a future scene of judgment that occurs after his second coming and before the millennial kingdom. Understand, there are many types of judgment in the Bible that takes place in Scripture. I'll explain this as, as we go, but this is a unique judgment for those who live through and survive this time, the seven-year period that's called the Great Tribulation. In fact, all of chapters 24 and 25, the, the way, uh, the, the context of what Jesus is presenting covers the time period that is called the Great Tribulation after the rapture, rapture of the church and before the millennial reign of Christ. Jesus says it's going to be like a shepherd separating the sheep from the goats. Now, we're going to divide our time here into three thoughts, beginning with the return of the Savior. We see that in verses 31 through 33, the return of the Savior. Jesus is continuing his message. Verse 31, he says, he continues, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Now notice in verse 31 it says, when. When the Son of Man comes. Not if he comes, but when he comes. Jesus is coming again. If you don't get anything else out of this morning, understand that. Jesus is coming again. In fact, if you look back at chapter 24, verse 35, Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. So Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes. And that title for himself, the Son of Man, is a reference to his humanity, that he is the Son of Man. It's also a reference to his deity. In fact, it's a, a title, a messianic title from the book of Daniel. Jesus was 100% man as well as 100% God. But in describing himself as the Son of Man returning to earth, everyone knows it's the same Son of Man who came the first time in humility. But he is now returning in glory. 
The first time Jesus came, he came in meekness. He came to die our death on the cross for us, to take our penalty of sin, to die the death that we owed, that we deserved, a debt that we could not pay, that he paid a debt he did not owe for us. And he came in humility. But the next time he comes, as it says here, he will come in his glory. He has revealed his glory once in his earthly ministry. You know, the Mount of Transfiguration where he took Peter, James, and John on the mountaintop. He allowed them to see a bit of his glory for a brief period of time. It says that he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. And when Jesus Christ comes again, it will be in pure, brilliant, radiant, bright light. The, what's called the Shekinah glory, the presence, the presence glory of God. And because of its brilliance, we're told in Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, that when he returns, every eye will see him. How is that? How will every eye see him? Well, he shines like the sun. And, you know, we've seen comets or shooting stars go across the sky on a pitch dark, pitch black night. You see that go across? Well, imagine something brighter than the sun coming all the way and then landing on the earth. I think we're all going to see that. Every eye will definitely see it. And we're told here in verse 31 that when he comes, he will come with all the holy angels with him. The angels serve as what we might call divine gatherers or, and separators. And not only the angels, Revelation chapter 19 tells us that we, the church, are also returning with Christ riding on white horses. Now, that's a whole other scene we'll get in, we've gotten into before. But the point is, Jesus returns with holy angels and his church with him, following him. And then the last part of verse 31, he will sit on the throne of his glory. When the angel Gabriel, when he came to Mary in Luke chapter 1, uh, verse 31, it says, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. God had told David, through your lineage, the Messiah will come and he will set up his throne forever. And a throne, by the way, that is in Jerusalem, and when Jesus comes, he will come to Jerusalem and establish his throne as he begins and as he begins to establish his throne verse 32 says all the nations will be gathered before him now how are all the nations going to be gathered before him at his throne well understand this if you've been with us throughout this entire series on the end of the age by the end of the great tribulation the population of the earth will be radically reduced you have the rapture of the church. Well, right now, we have 8 billion people on the planet. Uh, then you have the rapture. I'm not going to get into statistics necessarily, but let's just say a big chunk, less than half probably, but let's just throw out a number. 20% of the people are taken in the rapture. Then you have the persecution and the martyrdom of many of those who believe in Jesus after the rapture and during the Great Tribulation, so many will lose their lives there. Then you have the death and destruction of the Great Tribulation itself. That will take many people from the earth, and if you look at Revelation, you see a third is taken, then another third. So there's not many people left on the planet at that point. And then you have the Battle of Armageddon and Jesus' glorious return to the earth. That will take many from the earth. Yet there will still be people remaining on the earth after 
Jesus' return in power and glory at the end of that seven-year Great Tribulation period. Among them are the 144,000 who were specially sealed and preserved through the Great Tribulation and who stand with the Lamb of God on Mount Zion at his glorious return. Beyond that, let's say, uh, let's say there's a billion people left on the planet who survived the Great Tribulation and Armageddon. What happens with all of these people? Well, that's what this judgment is all about. This particular judgment that we see here seems distinct from what's called the great white throne judgment described in Revelation chapter 20. And I say that for several reasons. First, it happens at a different time. What's called the great white throne judgment clearly happens after the 1,000 year reign of Christ and his saints. And this judgment of the nations, this is called the judgment of the nations, this happens immediately after his return uh, at the end of the seven-year period. Also, it happens at a different place. The great white throne judgment happens in heaven. This judgment is happening on earth. It also, it happens to different subjects, different people. The great white throne judgment includes all unbelievers, all unredeemed people. This judgment of the nations seems to only include the nations, the Gentile nations left at the end of the Great Tribulation. It also happens on a different basis, and we're going to see that described as we go on. So I see those as two distinct judgments for those reasons. And then the angels, they, they now begin to bring all the remaining people before the Lord. It says he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. Of course, Jesus is the good shepherd. John 10, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for his sheep. And that's what Jesus did at his first coming as the good shepherd. He laid down his life for every single person. He paid for the sins of every single person on the cross. However, this is only applied to those who accept his sacrifice on their behalf by faith. So when Jesus comes as a good shepherd, he will receive those who have received him and his sacrifice on their behalf. Then he will separate those who have rejected him uh, and his sacrifice on their behalf, like a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. At the time of Jesus and still today, it's common to see flocks of goats and flocks of sheep, especially in Israel. They have the flocks out there in the fields, both out in the open pasture during the day, but at night, you would bring them in from the pasture. You would separate them. Uh, they have different temperaments. They don't need to be together at night. And also, sheep can tolerate the cool air better that, than goats. Goats would have to be herded together for warmth. So that you have this separation. Verse 33, he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. The right hand is the hand of blessing. When a Jewish man would bless his children, he would bring them to him and he would place his right hand on their head and pray for them and bless them. And then the left hand would have been used for cursing. And you see examples of that throughout the Old Testament. Well, Jesus says, when I return, those who are alive and love me will be on my right hand. Those who reject me, those who are alive and hate me, they will be put on my left. So when Jesus Christ comes back, he is separating those who made it through the great tribulation. Now I'm going to insert something here just for greater, hopefully greater understanding. 
What about the believers? What about the church that's raptured up? We're with the Lord for seven years. We're coming back with the Lord in Revelation 19. The riding the white horses in the battle of Armageddon. All those that have gone to be with the Lord. We are now in glorified bodies. So you have believers in glorified bodies coming back with the Lord. And you also have believers who made it through the great tribulation. They're just in regular bodies. And the unbelievers are put in a place of punishment. But now you have believers in physical bodies and believers in glorified bodies. And there's interaction between the two. That sounds weird, doesn't it? How, how does that work? Well, we've talked about this in earlier parables when we come back with the Lord, we are given rulership. We will reign with Christ in our glorified bodies on the earth. But what about the believers who come into the millennial reign of Christ in their physical bodies? What are they going to be doing during the millennium? Well, they're going to be enjoying paradise. They're going to be enjoying that. We will be in our glorified bodies, but they're going to enjoy paradise as it was meant to be enjoyed. During the millennial reign of Jesus Christ, the earth will be like it was, very similar to the way it was when Adam and Eve before the fall of man. And there will be interaction between believers who are in glorified bodies and believers in regular bodies. And you say, how is that going to work? Well, it's exactly the way it worked when Jesus rose from the dead. After he rose from the dead, he walked with his disciples. He, he talked with them for 40 days. He even ate with them. He ate food with them in a glorified body. However, he also was able to pass through doors and walls and all of that with his glorified body. So, but there was interaction between the two. They knew who he was. His disciples knew who he was when they talked with him after he rose from the dead. That's how it's going to be during the millennial reign of Christ. I mean, that sounds kind of cool, doesn't it? Especially if you've got the glorified bodies and doing all these kind of things. It's going to be awesome. And then those who live in their physical bodies will actually live longer, like people did before the flood. Isaiah chapter 65, verse 20 says that if a man lives only to be 100, he is like a child. In other words, understanding that the conditions of the earth will make it so that men and women will live longer, like what happened before the flood. So people will be living longer and the earth will repopulate itself over that 1,000-year period, the millennial reign of Christ. Unfortunately, what happens at the end of that 1,000-year period, there will be those who won't want to follow Jesus Christ. We read in Revelation chapter 20 that at the end of the millennial reign of Christ, remember the Antichrist and the false prophet, prophet they're put in the lake of fire. But Satan, he is bound for a thousand years, but at the end of a thousand years, he is released and goes about and deceives the nations. And you're thinking, wait, how could anyone be deceived? I mean, you only have believers who are coming into the millennium, right? Now, many of us will be in glorified bodies, but those people in physical bodies are enjoying paradise. How could they walk away from the Lord? Well, consider this. When Jesus was on the earth, he did miracle after miracle. He raised the dead. He himself rose from the dead, yet many rejected him. And over the course of 1,000 years, there will be those who turn away from the Lord. And we are told that when Satan is released, at the end of those 1,000 years, he will deceive many and to fall away from the Lord. However, Jesus will then judge 
the nations one last time, and he will take Satan and throw him into the lake of fire along with the Antichrist and the false prophet. And then we're told in Revelation 20 that all of the unbelievers will stand before what's called the great white throne judgment. That's what I mentioned earlier. Their names will not be found in the book of life, and they too will be thrown into the lake of fire. Listen, I want you to know this. No believer will stand before the great white throne judgment. That is for unbelievers alone. Why? Our sins were taken and paid for and judged at the cross. We are in Christ. That judgment has already taken place. So no believer will stand before the great white throne judgment. The judgment we will face will be, it's called the, the Bema seat of Christ, where our works are, are judged in terms of what our rewards might be in heaven. But that's the only judgment we face because our sins were judged at the cross. Now, all of that was just to give you kind of a full end-time scenario. You get all the details of this in the book of Revelation. Again, the Olivet Discourse is really the condensed version of the book of Revelation, or big chunks of the book of Revelation. So what we have here in this section is Jesus Christ returning with his angels and also with believers, and he's now judging those who are living in their physical bodies, believers and unbelievers. So let's move from the return of the Savior to the reward of the saved, because once all the people have been separated, believers like sheep on the right hand, uh, unbelievers like goats on the left, He addresses the believers here, verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. For I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Now, This is interesting. In that whole thing we just read, there is no mention of of faith or even forgiveness here. This judgment was based purely on their acts of kindness. Acts of kindness to whom? Verse 37, Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? Verse 40, and the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Who is the least of these during the great tribulation? Remember, keeping everything in context, everything in the context of what we've been reading, who is the least of these during the great tribulation? My brethren, Jesus is talking about the Jewish people who become believers during the Great Tribulation. And this judgment is based purely on their kindness to the saints who made it through the persecution that took place in the Great Tribulation. And this is another clear distinction between the judgment of the nations and the final judgment. That great white throne judgment of Revelation 20 is based on what is written in the book of life. The judgment of the nations is based on the treatment of others, especially believers and especially the Jewish believers who become Christians who will be especially hated and persecuted in the last half of the Great Tribulation. So that tells us 
the who and the when. The who are the Jewish saints who become believers. That is what the great tribulation, the purpose of that judgment is, is for the repentance of Israel, that the Jewish people understand who the Messiah is and come to saving faith in the true Messiah. And that tells us who and when during the great tribulation, especially the last half. Now, all that to say, even though that's the direct, that is the direct meaning of this particular passage, of course, it does apply to us in how we treat people. So I'm not discounting that at all. We are to, to look for the needs of the least of these around us. So that's, but that is the secondary application than what he is talking about in context. So why are believers, why are they surprised here? Because they weren't doing it to be seen by others. They were doing this, just extending the kindness that was just a natural outflow of their hearts. There is humility of heart in their actions towards those who are suffering, those who are being persecuted for their faith. They have a heart to minister. So he says, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it for me. When you were doing this to others with the heart of Christ, it's as if you were doing it to Christ himself. Jesus said in John 13, verse 35, this, this all will know uh, that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Love for one another. People know you are different in how we treat one another. People know that you're a Christian. Why? They see your love in action and how you treat others, how we minister to others, tend to the needs of others. And that is important. So that's the reward of the saved. Jesus says here, come you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. Or as Jesus put it in the other parable, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. That's the reward. So now let's look at the rejection of the unsaved. We see that beginning in verse 41. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Now I've mentioned this before, but here is the verse that clearly says that hell was not created for people. Hell was created for the devil and his angels. The truth is, God doesn't want any person to go to this place of everlasting fire. 1 Timothy 2 verse 4 says that God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. All men, not some, not most, but all men. God wants all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Of the truth. The problem is that if someone rejects Christ and wants to follow after Satan, what more can God do? God gives all of us free will to choose. We can choose either to accept Christ and to receive his sacrifice for us or to reject him, to follow Christ or to follow our own desires, which is ultimately to follow the lies of the enemy. God wants to give us hope and peace and forgiveness, but people of their own free will choose to reject that, what more can God do? God isn't going, going to force anyone. God doesn't send anyone to heaven that doesn't want to be there, and he doesn't want anyone to go to hell. 
The only reason why people go there is because they choose of their own free will to go there. Jesus clearly points out here that hell was prepared for the devil and his angels. People only go there because they have willingly cast their lot with the devil and his angels. Charles Spurgeon put it this way, They had joined the devil in refusing allegiance to the Lord, so it was but right that, imitating his rebellion, they should share his punishment. It's unfortunate, but it gives us a heart to pray for those that don't know the Lord, to pray for those who are unsaved, our unsaved friends and loved ones. Well, Jesus continues on, verse 42, For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Interesting. The charge against them was not about any obvious moral violation. It wasn't this great sin of this, or you did that, you committed this offense. No, it was about their indifferent attitude about Jesus and his people. It was indifference. Their indifference sealed their destiny. And it has been emphasized all throughout this chapter in the last parables we've been reading. The price of indifference is too high to pay. We can't afford to be indifferent towards Jesus and his return. We can't afford to be indifferent towards the Holy Spirit who makes us ready for his return. We can't afford to be indifferent toward the resources God has given us. We can't afford to be indifferent towards the the needy people around us. And we can't afford to be indifferent towards lost humanity that will stand in judgment. We can't be indifferent about those things. And so notice their response, verse 44. Then they also will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? When? And then he will answer them saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. So the unrighteous are just as surprised as as the righteous, maybe because they did some righteous acts. You know, unbelievers can do nice things. Uh, Some do even greater things uh, uh, on the surface, but their motives are wrong. Maybe they do it for attention or recognition or to be known as a philanthropist, to be seen as some great uh, giver. Maybe it's a kind act, but it's not for Jesus. For them, they didn't show faith in God by treating Israel, the people, God's people, favorably. They didn't give them aid and comfort during the Great Tribulation. And in context of the Olivet Discourse and the end of the age, the question will be, for those living at that time, how did you treat the Jewish people? How did you treat Israel? Satan's trying to wipe them out. He's been trying to wipe them out since Genesis chapter 3. How did you treat the people of Israel who are now going to be, at this time, they will be believers. They will be God's saints. Did you help them during this time? Because in the great tribulation period, many Jews will come to Christ. They will be sealed, but there will be this wave of anti-Semitism that will sweep through the world. And that's hard for us to believe that it's going to be worse than it has been it will be even worse. Many Gentile nations will persecute Israel, but some Gentile nations will bless them and be kind to them. 
And Jesus will have a judgment for those nations, and probably since he's delving this out to individuals, rulers of those nations, and the individuals within that nation. Those, uh, those who are dealing with his brethren, my brethren, the Jewish people, that is the judgment of the nation. So in direct context, in the most direct context, this is not about social justice. The social justice movement portrays Jesus not as a deity, but as a social warrior who wants to eliminate the gaps between the rich and the poor in society as a whole. That's called Marxism. And that there's aspects of that that has infiltrated the church, that somehow Jesus is a social justice warrior. Today's politicized notion of social justice replaces uh, the individual with the government, which through taxation and other means redistributes wealth. But Christians express God's love and justice. We are to be about justice, but biblical justice. We're to be about God's love and justice by showing kindness and mercy to the least of these, to those less fortunate. But it's done on an individual basis or even as a church, not as a government-forced thing. I say that because these verses we just read get used by liberal Christians, and I use the word Christians very loosely, and even, even governments that, well, Jesus said this, and this is why we do these Marxist, socialist, communist programs. That's not the context of what we just read. Individually, absolutely. We take care of the needs of those around us. We do. But I say that because this gets brought up a lot even today, that these verses get used totally out of context. Verse 46, and these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Notice there are two destinations, and both of them are forever. You have everlasting punishment, and you have eternal life. Those words everlasting and eternal are both translated, two different words in the English, but they're both translated from the same ancient Greek word. So if the righteous experience life forever, there must, we must also say that the unrighteous experience punishment forever. Now, this mention of eternal life here, it makes many people believe that, well, Jesus is talking about the final judgment. But for those who survive the great tribulation, entering into the millennial kingdom is the gateway to eternal life. But those who don't enter the millennial kingdom will certainly have everlasting punishment. Again, the purpose of this judgment of the nations is to separate people who survived the great tribulation before the beginning of Jesus' millennial kingdom. The wicked and the cruel will not enter, but the, the moral and the good will enter. Again, as we've seen throughout this Olivet Discourse, it's bad to be taken, it's good to be left behind. Unlike the rapture, that's a totally different story. But when it comes to entering the millennial kingdom, it's bad to be taken, it's good to be left behind. Now, as we look back, so we've covered seven messages for these two chapters. And as we look back over the Olivet Discourse, let's review several key facts. To begin with, God is not finished with the people of Israel. Jesus made it clear in this sermon that Israel will be purified and brought to faith in the Messiah. God has not cast his people away. 
Second, the Old Testament promises of the kingdom will be fulfilled. The tribulation period will be extremely difficult for people on the earth. But it will, it will be travail in preparation for the birth of the kingdom. The suffering will lead to glory. And third, God is going to judge the world. He's not sending cataclysmic events and judgments today because right now we are, in, we are still in the day of grace. We are in the, the age of grace. We're still in the church age. And his message today is to be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to repent, to trust in Jesus Christ. But Jesus will come again and judge the world. Fourth, we as Christians and members of his church, we're not looking for signs. 1 Corinthians 1.22 says the Jews request a sign, and that's what he's giving them here. Uh, he's, here are the signs. There will be no signs prior, given prior to the rapture of the church, of Christ coming in the air for his church. Different scene, different scenario. However, as we see, the, the, as we look and see the tribulation signs beginning, we can see some of these things beginning to happen. We feel that the end is not far away. It's not far off. It seems that international tensions and problems are increasing to the point where the world's going to cry out for a ruler, somebody to fix all of our problems. If there was one world ruler who could just get us all together, bring us together, and guess what? Satan has a candidate ready to, to put him in place. And finally, no matter what view of pro prophecy we take, I know not everyone maybe agrees with the presentation or how I see these things play out. But no matter what view of prophecy we take, we can agree on this. Jesus is coming again. Amen? He is coming again. And as Christians, we must be alert, we must be ready, and we must not waste our opportunities. We may not have a great deal of ability or, or gifts of the Spirit, many gifts, but we can still be faithful to use what God has given us to reach our community, our, our friends, our families, co-workers, whatever sphere of influence you have. And for us here this morning, every person here and every person who has ever lived is going to live forever somewhere. God created you to live forever. You will live throughout eternity. The only question is where. Where you are going to live out that eternity. Only those who place their faith in Jesus Christ will go into eternal life. Those who reject him go into everlasting punishment. But God has dropped one lifeline for us. One lifeline between himself and man, and that is Jesus Christ. Only those who accept Jesus Christ have eternal life. Jesus put it this way in John 14, verse 6, that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's pretty exclusive. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. God has dropped us one lifeline. If you were to go down to Galveston over the summer, go to the beach, you, you go out to Galveston, you get out in the water, and there can be some riptides out there that can kind of pull you away from the shore. And let's say you're out there, and all of a sudden you get pulled out from the shore, and you get, you're trying to swim back in, and you get tired. You, you realize you're struggling, and your, your family's on the shore. They've lost sight of you. They get concerned, and they call the lifeguard, and the lifeguard calls 
a helicopter to come in and to go rescue you. And they find you out in the water, you're barely treading water, and they drop the buoy down. And if you got that buoy, you're out there, and you're like, no, nah, this isn't the right size for me. Give me another one. That's dumb, right? That would be foolish to not grab hold of the lifeline you were given. You have a lifeline. Grab onto it and be thankful that you have, they found you and are rescuing you. And it's the same with Jesus Christ. God has dropped you one lifeline. It is Jesus, and it's only Jesus. It's from God to you. So grab hold of it and be thankful God offered it to you. Jesus loves you. He wants to forgive you of all of your sins. He wants to cleanse you. He wants to create in you a new heart, a heart that loves him and serves him. That is his desire for everyone, that we might receive the reward of eternal life that's found in Jesus Christ alone. So as we wind up our time, the question is, have you grabbed onto the lifeline of Jesus Christ? Do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Maybe today would be a day that you make a commitment to him, that you grab hold of that one lifeline that he offers. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray? Lord,